0: Previously in Ephesus, we have seen in the first three chapters uh, what God has done in Christ to create a new humanity. And basically the first three chapters, we sit and we watch and we marvel at who God is and what he's done. And then in chapters four to six, we see how we live as a consequence of that. We're called to walk worthy of the calling that we've received. And the last time we were in Ephesians, we were looking at at chapter 5, verses 18 to 21, what it means to be spirit filled. And uh, it's a lot bigger and a lot grander and a lot wider than sometimes we narrow it down to. And, and this morning I want to look at then how, how does the life in the spirit, how does being spirit filled actually then affect our relationships? Because that's not always where we go first when we think about the evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, Lots of people may think, well, we're filled with the Holy Spirit and then this happens or that happens. Or we have these ideas of what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul goes straight to our relationships. And I want to, and I think I, think I have... Um, every right biblically to do this. I want to broaden this out to all of our important relationships. Paul's going to mention marriage. He's going to mention parenting and children. He's going to mention work. But I want, to, I want to just let this encompass all of what you would call your important relationships. So I don't want anyone thinking, well, it doesn't apply to me for this reason or that reason. Not true. This applies to every follower of Jesus because we all live in, in relationship somewhere let me read from verse 18. Uh, I'm going to read uh, throughout the message. I'll get to the end of chapter 6 verse 9, but I'm not going to read it all at once at the start. I'm just going to start from from verse 18 and and take it in a few chunks as we go along. And it's very, very important that we start at verse 18. (laughs) Really important. Not just to recap, but to actually see when Paul says what he says in verse 18, everything that follows flows from this. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord, Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church. Oh, Lord, let us be that. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's the church Jesus is coming for. That's the church he's building. That's the church he will have. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. We'll stop there and pick it up again later. You cannot mature in in isolation. You can't. As a Christian, as a believer, you cannot progress in isolation. As a Lone Ranger, you must be in relationship. And as I say, there's a wide net that I'm casting for those relationships. None of us are hermits. None of us live in little caves, completely isolated from all other people. We are all in relationship. And it's in those relationships that we grow and we mature. Lone Ranger Christians do not mature spiritually. Mature Christians commit themselves to long-term friendships, relationships in the body of Christ and put up with one another, even when that sometimes might appear more difficult and it might be easier to not put up with one another. Mature believers commit. I have, and I mentioned it on Friday night as we were praying on Friday night, I have this, just this little personal thing in my heart that I want to grow old with a community of people walking with God together that I want to stand leaning on a Zimmer frame at the top of this town in a few decades, please God, and look down over the town and say what a ride it has been. I want long-term relationships where lives, we read it in the story of, of David and Jonathan about how their souls were knit together. I have my soul knit together with quite a few people and I love it, knit together you're stuck with each other, you're stuck with each other, and you learn to make space for each other, and you love each other. If you don't have relationships like that, you don't mature in your faith. Those people knock the rough edges off you, and you knock the rough edges off them at the same time. And Paul's going to begin with wives and husbands, he's going to go on to talk about children and parents and slaves and masters, and he hasn't really, he hasn't put them in order of importance. He's just sort of put them in order of immediacy. Which are the ones that, that are closest? Which are the ones that affect us maybe the most, but not necessarily the most important? Don't, don't, as we go through, think, well, you know, once we get the children and parents, it's not as important as marriage. It is. It is. And Ephesians five eighteen says, be filled with the Spirit, and then all of this flows out. And I want to make it perfectly clear. If you're filled with the Spirit... It will be apparent in your relationships. If your relationships are strained and taut and fractious and filled with tension and fighting and squabbling, it doesn't matter what you do on Sunday morning whenever you're looking all buffed up and well. It doesn't matter. You're proving by the rest of your life that you're not actually filled with the Spirit. Because he will transform our relationships. And as I say, there's an unfortunate paragraph break there in most Bibles at the start of verse 22. And we read it and say, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And all the men stamp their feet and shout, Amen. Preach it, brother. You know, Keep on going. And don't realize that there's a word in the verse in English that should not be there. In verse 22, the word submit is not there in the Greek language. It's carried over from verse 21. And in verse 21, the command to submit encompasses all of the people and all of the relationships. Be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another, wives to your husbands. That's literally how it would read. But how many times has that verse been lifted out of context and slammed down so that somebody gets his way? Yeah? Just lays it on the table and says, this is the way we're going because you have to submit to me. No, that is unbiblical and it is not the way to handle the text at all. We're submitting to one another and we're doing it in verse 21 out of reverence for Christ. It's not a statement that applies to one person any more than another person. It applies to the entire community. And as I might mention near the end, I don't know, but when this was read in churches in Ephesus, the churches met in houses. And this applied to everyone in the community. As, as, as the reader got up and read this letter from Paul, everyone in that community fell into the category of either a husband, a wife, A parent, a child, a slave, or a master. Nobody in the room was left out. Nobody in the room was left out. Nobody could sit and listen to this and think, well, that doesn't apply to me. Everyone in the room in a first century house church fell into one of these categories, and this command to submit to one another, put one another's needs first, is for all of them. We have a question in in one of the discipleship the list of questions that we use whenever we get together and it is this have you been honoring understanding and generous in your important relationships this week your important relationships have you been honoring understanding and generous in your important relationships it's a big big question he starts with marriage and just before you men start to get your highlighter out and underline and, or whatever, Paul's going to say at least three times as many words to the men when he addresses them as he does to the women. And the wives are called in verse 22 leading on from verse 21 to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. Husbands had a bad attitude in the first century. Most men had three women. He had a wife to raise godly children. This is a quote from a a, a first century writer called Demosthenes. He had a wife for raising legitimate children. He had a concubine. This always reminds me of a porcupine. (laughs) Surely somebody else thinks porcupine when you read concubine. He had a concubine. She was for his physical needs. And he had a mistress who would be seen with him in public as he went to public gatherings and events. That's the view they had of women in the first century. Um, Most girls, when they got married, were in their mid-teens and had probably not been out of the house much and not been educated much. They, in their mid-teens, would have married a man of about 30. In an arranged marriage, a lot of it to do with politics or aristocracy or whatever. Women were not treated well at all. And Paul does not say to them, husbands, remember her birthday. Remember the anniversary. Get some chocolates. You know, He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And to speak that into a culture where men had wives and concubines and mistresses was radically countercultural. It really was a radical statement to speak into that culture. And what Paul is doing is he is applying the gospel and the victory of Jesus into the lives of people, and he is giving value to women in a culture where they had no value. Some people read Paul and they think that he is unkind to women. They have not read Paul. They have not understood the culture. Paul sets women free. Jesus sets women free, gives them value and dignity and identity that the culture would not allow them to have. They were always seen as being of lesser value to a man. And the gospel puts that right and says you are equal. You're not the same. You're equal. There's a difference. How did Christ love the church? He went to the cross. He gave himself for her. He washed her feet. He served her. That's how a husband is to love his wife. When a man loves his wife like that, Submitting to his leadership is not a problem, because he will never abuse it. Ever. The thing that causes the breakdown in relationships is always the same thing every time. In a relationship, whether it's a marriage relationship, family relationship, work relationship, the same thing always causes the breakdown in relationships. It is selfishness. Always. Always. When you just drill down to the very root of it, it is selfishness. Someone's being selfish. Jesus said, men, love your wives the way I love the church. Give yourself away. Die. (laughs) Die. I say whenever, when we used to do premarital classes and counseling for people, and and I would say, not in a morbid way, but in 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 a truthful, honest way, you know, whenever the man goes to the front of that church for his marriage, he's also going for his This is not meant to be funny, although you'll probably laugh. He's also going for his funeral. Because he has to die. He has to die or it will not last. If he maintains all his selfishness, he's headed for disaster. And how people can use this passage then and lift out verse 22 in order to try and put husbands in a position of domination over their wives is unbelievable. Whenever the standard of love that's required of husbands is so high, You know, traditionally people take that and they'll they'll apply it to something stupid like this. Like like whenever a decision has to be made and the, the husband and wife can't agree, the husband gets to make the decision. That is not what Paul is writing about at all, remotely. As if they're disagreeing about where to go on holidays or what color of car to get. And Paul says, well, I'll sort this out by writing this verse. He's not addressing that at all. What he's addressing is the fact that if we are filled by the Holy Spirit, then our relationship should look like Jesus. And people should see Jesus in our relationships. And clearly Paul does write of a leadership role for husbands. But he absolutely redefines what that looks like. He says it has been redefined around the cross. It has been redefined in Christ. Your leadership must be servant leadership cross-centered leadership, God-honoring, Christ-exalting, loving, foot-washing, servant leadership. That's what it looks like. So yes, you lead, but here's how you lead. You look to the cross and you take your lead from there. If you look back to Mark chapter 10, and I think this applies to leadership in all areas of life, not just in in, uh, relationships or in marriage, but in Mark 10, there's been a a request for James and John. They've come and asked Jesus um, if they can sit at his right and his left when he comes into his kingdom. And they've just misunderstood what leadership and authority will look like. And Jesus said to them in verse 42, he calls them all together, the 12, and he gives them a lesson in leadership. And I love it. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. In other words, he says, out in the world, people bully one another. People exercise authority by giving orders. People lord it over other people. And then he comes out with four words that I love at the start of verse 43. Not so with you. (laughs) You will not lead like that. And he then tells what Christian leadership is going to look like in every aspect of life. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Again, Jesus is the example. Your leadership must be as a servant. Paul goes on to say in in verse 26 that Jesus is going to make the church holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church. It's a lovely picture of what he did on the cross. That cleansing work. If we could really just see how dirty we actually are or how dirty we were before we came to him. Paul writes in in another letter to to the Corinthians, about their past he reminds them where they came from he says do you not know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God don't be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God and that is what some of you were (laughs) past tense but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So he talks about this washing work of the cross that it does for us and says how that is again reflected in marriage. He says in verse 30 that husbands are to love their wives like their own body, verse 29 and 30. If you mistreat, if a man mistreats his wife, he is doing self-harm to himself. By damaging her, who is one flesh with him, he is damaging himself. If he does not love her and look after her, that is just like he is mistreating his own physical body. It doesn't make sense to do that. And in this context, then, you can understand in verse 33 where he says that the wife must respect her husband. Again, this is not some sort of hammer hitting the table. You must respect me because the Bible says so. When a husband loves in this way, he will be respected, he will be honored, and he will not abuse, ever abuse that privilege that God has called him to in leadership. There is nothing in Scripture anywhere to suggest that a wife should submit to an abusive, domineering, violent husband. Nothing. Anywhere. There are verses that encourage if if a wife becomes a believer and her husband is not a believer, verses that encourage her to stay with him. (laughs) Not to turn around and say, well, I'm a Christian now and I'm going my own way, but to stay with him and be a good testimony to him. But there is nothing that commands a woman to stay with an abusive man. Nothing. It's not there. So Paul speaks about how the Holy Spirit in our lives should affect our marriages. And then speaks about children and parents at the start of chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. (laughs) And all the parents said, Amen, glory to God. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And all the mums and dads stop right there and don't want to read verse (laughs) 4, which we'll get to in a minute. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I don't know if you've ever read kids' Bibles or kids' little Christian books written for kids. Some of them are fabulous. Some of them are awful. Among the fabulous ones is, uh, I think, one called the Jesus Storybook Bible, brilliant for reading to to, to young kids, not even young kids, um, any age of kids. But some of them I have read and just thought to myself, this is just manipulative. This book is just about behavior management. So you'd read a little Bible story and then at the end, at the bottom of the page, there's a little application and the application will be basically, this means that you should tidy your room. Or, or this means that you should do what mommy and daddy say. Or, and I just got, I started to feel guilty reading them with my kids because I thought this is not telling them the great story of God and King Jesus and what it means to be part of the people of God. This is just trying to to manipulate their behaviour. You know, go and be nice to your little brother because Jesus said so. And you're like, this is not the purpose of the word of God. This is not the purpose of, of what these books are for. They should be to tell them the great story of who God is and who Jesus is. Not to make them feel guilty every night about what they've done during the day and try and get them to put it right. A few kids are wriggling down under seats here. <laughs> we need our kids to know the, the big story and marvel at the big story of Jesus. So, I would recommend any of you that have have youngish kids, the Jesus Storybook Bible is a fantastic one, and I'm sure there are others as well. In the culture that Paul is writing into, the two Greek words for children, tekna and pedia, are neuter. They're not male or female. In ancient Greek that Paul was living in, there was not a word for little boy, and there was not a word for little girl. There was just the word child. They were not valued. They were not seen really as being fully human until they reached adulthood. They were frequently discarded if they were unwanted. If you had a child and you didn't want the child, you would just abandon the child. We'll not go into detail about what might then happen to the child, but that was what they did. If you wanted a son and you got a daughter, abandon the daughter. If If you had any sort of a heart at all, As good as it got was, you might sell them into slavery rather than just leave them on the street (coughs) somewhere. They did not value children. But now the kingdom of God has come. And just like the role of women in society was redeemed and transformed because of Jesus, same thing happens for children. (coughs) Paul speaks these words into a world where children were not valued at all. Verse 4 kids listen to this fathers i think we could include mothers as well fathers do not exasperate your children memory verse for all the little ones <laughs> do not exasperate okay the word exasperate's a big word what does it mean it means do not provoke them do not irritate them do not be unreasonable with them do not frustrate them <laughs> it applies when they're grown up as well, Nigel. Hmm. Yeah. It's easy to read the first three verses, isn't it? But the, the, the fourth one's the big header. Whoever unreasonable. Just unreasonable. <laughs> just our frustrations or our own tiredness or whatever overflows and we are unreasonable to our kids. That, again, you, you, you we can't really fully understand just how earth-shattering that statement is in the first century world. The kingdom of God has come. These little human beings now have value. Love them. Be reasonable to them. Don't frustrate them. Don't be angry with them. Treat them as fully human, made in the image of God, just as you are. There's a responsibility for parents and fathers and mothers, and there's also the responsibility for children as well. If you're ever reading from chapter 6, read all four of those verses together and be aware of the mutual responsibility. Parents, I've asked this before and I keep asking them, do you ever apologize to your children? Do you ever apologize to your children? How do you expect them to mature and to have relationships that require the odd apology now and again if they have never heard you apologize to them? <laughs> if you've never just sat down with them and said, listen, sweetie, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. That wasn't right. Will you forgive me? That's a powerful thing. But don't expect them when they're 16, to come and apologize to you if they have never seen you do it. (laughs) It's a powerful thing. And whenever a family lives like this, it's a powerful testimony because our homes, our houses, our town is full of brokenness and bitterness. But if in the middle of a street, there's a little family just loving and honoring one another, being spirit-filled in their relationships, whoever's there, whoever's there, that will affect others round about them. Non-Christians should come into our homes and should see something that powerfully reflects the glory of God. And then he talks about our work relationships in verses 5 to 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. And with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. And you think, Paul, you missed the chance to say that slavery was wrong. (laughs) You missed the chance to blow it out of the water. It, It took William Wilberforce to get it right 1,800 years later. But no, Paul didn't get it wrong. This is not actually a problem. Whenever Paul talks about slavery and allows it, about a third to a half of a population of a city were slaves. They could not all just all of a sudden go free. Can you imagine? Half the population, no money, nowhere to live, suddenly wandering the streets of the city. Total carnage. We couldn't, but what he does is, and and I think it's a brilliant way to put it, Tom Wright says, Paul basically sets a time bomb into the world of slavery. And for the first time, again, just like he's done with women and like he's done with children, he gives slaves dignity and value and commands people to treat them with respect and he flicks the switch on a wee time bomb that centuries later will go off and slavery will be abolished. But in his context, he could not just say, open your doors and let all your slaves go out into the street and be free. The city would go into total meltdown. There'd be thieving and robbing going on all over the place in order to feed the people. What he does is he gives them rights and responsibilities and humanity and dignity that they did not have. He talks to the slaves and he tells the slaves to honor their masters and obey them. And I love in verse 6, he says, not just when their eye is on you. <laughs> you know, not just when the boss comes out onto the, onto the warehouse floor or into the shop and suddenly it's a frenzy of activity as everybody gets up and starts working. And then when he disappears again, they all slack off again. No, your boss is God. There's a lovely verse in, in Colossians, which is, Very similar to this in in 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. Do your work at a standard that you're doing it for God. Whether the boss is looking or not, whether the boss ever sees it or not, do it unto God. I love it when people work to a high standard. I think it's despicable when people do the bare minimum. I really do. It's a disgrace. Do it unto God. And the masters again in verse 9, we could probably apply this loosely to to workers, employees and employers. How do masters treat their employees? How do do employers treat their employees? (coughs) Honoring them, looking after them, again being reasonable for them. Because both their master and your master is in heaven. And the funny thing about this as you read this is that in, in the context that this was written into, the husband, the father, and the master was the same person. You imagine a house church, in comes the reader with the letter, and he reads the letter, and it's, there's one man in the room who is husband, father, and master, all of this applying to him. And everybody else is falling into some of the other categories, but nobody gets away, nobody escapes. Nobody walks away thinking this doesn't apply to me. One of the beautiful things about this is in the theme of the whole book or the whole letter. In chapter 1 verse 10, Paul has says that, one of the, that what God is doing is he's bringing all things in heaven and on earth together. Under one head, even Christ. He's bringing all things in heaven and on earth together. In chapter 2 he talks about how Jews and Gentiles are brought together to create one new humanity. In chapter four, he talks about unity in the church, bringing people together to create one body where all the different parts function together. It's all about togetherness. And then he brings it it down closer and closer into just real everyday life and he starts to talk about relationships. And that's why he quotes in chapter five, he quotes Genesis two about a man leaving his father and mother and being joined to his wife. It's all a little picture of what God is doing on a massive scale, bringing all things together under one head, even Christ. And it also reflects what God has planned from the very beginning. In Ephesians 3, we talk. it reads in verse 14 and 15 about the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Whenever God wanted to... You need to understand this. You can very much get this the wrong way. You can think to yourself, God wants us to know what he's like. He looks at our relationships and he says, Ah, I'm like a father. It's the other way around. God is a father, and then he creates the role of fatherhood to reflect who he is. Understand? Same with marriage. God did not think to himself one day, how, how can I explain to people what the relationship is like between Jesus and his church? And he looked around and saw a married couple and he thought, ah, that's good. That'll do. I'll use that. No, it's the other way around. God loves his church. Jesus loves his church. And he created marriage to reflect that. Jesus and the church was first. God-loving people was first. Marriage was instituted to reflect that to the world. So that every marriage is a little walking parable of how God loves his people. And in our marriages and in our parenting, we have such an important role because we're preaching the gospel 24-7 by how we live. Again, I've told you this before, but I can remember a few days after Rach was born, carrying her around the kitchen in our old house and just praying for her. And God spoke to me. And he said to me, as clear as can be, he said, David, for the rest of her life and all of your children's lives, when they hear me, God, being referred to as father, you are the point of reference for what that word means. What a responsibility that is. You are the point of reference as to what that means. And I thought to myself as I was chewing over this, if my children were given a big piece of paper, put on the ground, and markers, and it said at the top of the piece of paper, God is dot, dot, dot. And then they had to write a pile of stuff on the paper. But they were limited, and they were told, before you start writing, what you write about God, you can only write based on what you've seen in your own father. Now you can start writing. Now that's a witty responsibility. God is, God is what? God is too busy to play football with me. God is on his phone and he's not really listening to me when I sit down to tell him about my day. God is grumpy. God gets tired because God does too much. What would they write? Mother's a challenge as well. What would they write if, if if, it's only based on what, what, how they have seen parenting in you and they're only allowed to use those things to write about God? Huge responsibility. I remember <laughs> chatting to a guy once who, he was telling me that, his his dad walked out on him at Christmas time, and he therefore hated Christmas. Just you know, a bit grinchy about Christmas. You know, didn't just didn't like it, not interested in it, put up with it, but didn't really enjoy it. Wasn't excited about it in any way. Just like, and I remember saying to him, and I said it graciously and lovingly. I said to him, "Listen, mate, are you going to pass that on to the next generation? Or are you going to make a decision that that stops with you, yeah. or you're saying to me right now?" I hate Christmas because my dad left at Christmas. Are you going to put an end to that? Or in 15 years, are your kids going to say, I hate Christmas because my dad hates Christmas because his dad walked out at Christmas? Are you going to put a stop to it? For some of us, the words marriage, father, an employer, master, are difficult words. But we can redeem them for the next generation. We can redeem them instead of sending off the next generation with a skewed view of these things we can redeem them we can redeem them i listened to a song this morning that i haven't listened to for a long time cats in the cradle anybody ever heard a song called cats in the cradle I can't remember who wrote it. It's an old song, but a, a, a band covered it when I was a kid, and I remember listening to their version of it. But the the song starts off verse after verse after verse as this wee kid wanting his dad to play with him and saying to his dad, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be like you. I'm going to be like you. He just idolised his dad, but his dad was always too busy. Too many bills to pay, too much work to do, no time to play. And then the last verse, you know, so, so the, the, each, each verse ends with, you know, I'm, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. And then the last verse... Is years ahead, child's grown up and moved away, dad wants to spend some time with him, but the kid's too busy now with his own life. And the dad then ends that verse singing, he's grown up just like me. (laughs) What are we gonna pass on to the next generation? Are we gonna pass on our pain, our scars, our disappointments, or are we gonna redeem these things and send the next generation out with hope and excitement about these relationships? It's not about who makes the final decision, where we go on holiday or what color car we get. This is about glorifying God by our relationships, filled with the Holy Spirit. Another couple that we counseled, and we, we talked to them about, about how Jesus and the church, how, how marriage reflects Jesus and the church and the love that he has. And I remember then sitting in their wedding, it was your wee sister, sitting at their wedding and they were, they were taking their vows and uh, at the end of each of their vows they had had tweaked the vow and at the end of each of the vows they said i will never leave you nor forsake you i just thought you've got it you've got it (laughs) you're starting out knowing what you're actually doing you're showing the world what jesus and the church looks like let me finish by telling you just the story of julian the apostate He was an emperor in Rome and he was really concerned what was going to happen to the empire because of Christians. He thought they were going to lose control of the empire because all these Christians that were running around and he sent a letter out to all his governors. And his concern about the Christians was not that they were preaching in public or going door to door knocking doors or handing out tracts or standing shouting to people on the street. His concern was the fact that these Christians were welcoming people in and eating with them. His concern was that Christians were treating their wives as sisters and treating their slaves as brothers. And this was disrupting the empire. And lots of Romans were getting saved. They were getting born again because they were looking into these relationships that Christians had in their households, in their families, and in their churches. And they were joining in with them and getting born again because these relationships were so attractive. The empire was being transformed by Christians living out spirit filled relationships. Every man had three women, as I said earlier a wife for children, a concubine for physical needs, and a mistress to be seen in public. Then along came the Christians and treated women as equals. If you didn't want a child, you just chucked the child out. And then along came Christians and gave them value and dignity. You treated your slave unspeakably badly, threatened him and beat him to death if if he was not actually doing what he was told. And then along came Christians and treated slaves as their brothers. Hospitality was not practiced. Along came Christians and when they had their communion meals, they invited other people to come who were not part of their community. said, come on in and eat with us anyway. It doesn't matter whether you're part of our community or not. And what Julian said to his governors was, You need to out-love the Christians. They are transforming this empire by their love for one another. You need to love better than they do. But you can't command love. It's a fruit of the Spirit. So they couldn't do it, and the empire became Christian. These relationships is where being Spirit-filled, rubber hits the road. And I know there's a lot of pain in this room. And I've tread carefully. But let's just pray. Let's just pray for the redemption of our views of, of difficult relationships. Father, thank you that we can approach you as Father. And Lord, I pray for every person for whom the word father or mother is a difficult word. Lord, will you redeem that? Will you redeem that, Lord? I pray for everyone for whom the word marriage is a difficult word, would you redeem it, Lord? Would you cause it not to be passed on to the next generation as being a difficult word? I pray for everyone who's been bullied in the workplace and for whom the word boss is a difficult word, would you redeem that, Lord? Lord, would you fill us with your spirit and cause our relationships to honor you? Our marriages, our parenting, our children, our employees, our employers. Would you fill us with the spirit, fill us with the fruit of love, and cause us to live as a church in community in a way that causes the outside world to look in and say, what is going on there? I want some of that. Hallelujah. Father, I just pray for deep healing this morning in every heart that has been damaged and broken as a result of relationships going wrong in any one of these contexts. I pray for our children, Lord, that they will be excited about their future. Excited. Pray that all their little dreams of what the future should look like, Father, will be realized in the power of your Spirit. I pray for all our girls, Lord. I pray for God-honoring, loving husbands for them in the future. I pray for all our boys, Lord, that they will grow up to be men of honor who will love and protect and give themselves away for a wife and show the world what it means for Jesus to love his church. (laughs) Pray for all of the parents in the room, Lord, that you'd just give us a a big measure of grace and patience and love that we would not exasperate our children. Lord, be glorified in how we live. (coughs) Amen.